Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 5. We are walking verse by verse over these past several months, and it's going to take us a few more months to get through this wonderful book of Romans. But Romans chapter 5, we are going to be looking at the love of Christ and, and how God has shown us the love of Christ and why Christ died for us. I, I want to give a brief recap to, to get us back to where we are thinking Romans. We've uh, we've been on and off for a past couple of weeks, been preaching then off and preaching then off. And, and so we, I, I want to make sure that we're all following the, the line of thought here that, that Paul is talking about. Remember, the first four chapters of the book of Romans is all about the gospel and sin. Then when we come to chapter 5, he brings in this notion of hope. And so it's the gospel and hope. The first five verses, it took us a couple of weeks to get through of chapter 5, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And the great truth of what God is telling us here in those five verses of Romans 5 is, is simply that uh, the, the hope that, that God gives to us is simply amazing. But what we find is that so many of us have a problem with hope. We, 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 we look around and we see people just zooming down the highway of life and, and it's like we're stuck in, in neutral or we're, we're on the side of the road and we're not moving very much. And so what we do and how we've been conditioned and how we've been taught is that we need to pray for more faith. So we say, God, give me more faith. God, give me more faith. God, give me more faith. And what Paul tells us in the first five verses of Romans 5 is not that we have a faith problem, but our problem is a hope problem. And faith, as we've been talking about, faith is an action, hope is a possession. Hebrews chapter 11, we call it the great faith chapter. Actually, it's the great hope chapter because without hope, you cannot have faith. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about all these great men and women who were great men and women of faith, and, and that's a good thing. It's not wrong to ask for more hope, but, but all these men and women of faith, how does Hebrews chapter 11 begin? Now, faith is the substance of things what? hoped for the evidence of things unseen so without hope you cannot have faith and so many of us are stuck on the side of road of life we want to go down we want to go grow closer to the lord we we want to fulfill god's purpose and and plan for our life however we're out of gas we're we're stuck on the side of the road we're we're in neutral and we're saying god give me a bigger faith god give me a bolder faith God, give me a more expensive faith. That's like saying, God, give me a bigger, more expensive car with still no gas in it. And, and we, we were stuck, and we're, we're trying to get a bigger car, but what we're failing to do is fuel the car that we've got. And our faith is fueled with our hope. Now, what we saw two weeks ago is that hope, it's kind of, it's kind of uh, uh, ridiculous when you stop and think about it. Hope originates, what he says in verse 4 and 5, Hope originates in suffering. And so how we walk through times of life, how we walk through the hard times, the, the patches of life, the, the storms of life, if there's anything that a native Floridian knows is that if, if you don't like the weather, just give it an hour and it's going to change, right? You, you know that in, in this season right now, come 2 p.m., it's going to rain, right? It, weather is going to change. You're going to get storms in central Florida around 2, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. There are going to be thunderstorms, and we know that we can almost prescribe that, that this is what's going to take place in, in our atmospheric weather. Well, even more so in our human life, we may not be able to forecast when the storms are going to come, but we do know that storms are going to come. We do know that hard times are going to come, that there's going to be a season in our life when, when we go through hard times, we go through pain, we go through suffering. 
And what Paul tells us is that when we get our eyes on our problems and on our storms, it causes us to lose hope. But when we get our eyes through suffering and we keep our eyes on the Lord, then that produces character. Character produces, ultimately, it produces hope. This is what we talked about two weeks ago. So he's talking about hope and how hope fuels us and and how we have a a great expectation of what God is going to do in and through our lives in the future. So this is the hope that we have. And then Paul just kind of hits the pause button. After he makes this great, marvelous, exciting uh, statement that that we can be fueled with hope and, and he gives us that hope, he takes a moment and he says, now I want to remind you why Jesus died for you. Because why does he do this? Why does he do this? Because that's where our hope is found. Our hope, 1 Peter chapter 1, our hope is through the living hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's where our hope originates from. And so this is why I believe Paul writes uh, verses 6 and following. Please stand in the honor of reading God's word. Romans chapter 5, we'll begin reading in verse number 6. He talks about the death of Christ and God's love for us. He says, for while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Father, we thank you for this word. Open our minds and hearts over these next few moments that we have together to share. Speak to us, we pray. In Christ's name, and all of God's people said, please be seated. So today we're going to ask the question, why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? And Paul answers this with three statements. Number one, he says, because we can't save ourselves. This is verses six and seven. Verses six and seven of Romans chapter five is really Paul's version of John 3.16. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting eternal life. That's what John says. Now listen to how Paul says it. He says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the world. He died for the ungodly. It's all about Jesus dying for the sins of the world. Jesus died for the ungodly. And if you miss the beauty of what he says and the greatness of of verse 6, then Paul elaborates on it in verse 7. Notice what he says. "For, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Paul says very few people are going to give their lives for someone, but even fewer would die for someone they didn't believe in. We really wouldn't put our life down for someone who was evil and who was bad. If if we looked down and we saw somebody who was a a, a murderer, a a sinful human being, we would not exchange our life. We would not put our life on the line. I I would give my life for my children. I would. You probably would do the same. But there's only a handful of people that we would put our life on the line for. Now, would we put our life on the line for someone that that was just a despicable, no good person? Probably not. And this is what Paul is saying. We, we, We would not do that, but that's exactly what God has done. 
Paul's point here that he's trying to drive home is that there was no good in us. When, when God sent Jesus into this world, we were despicable, murder, no good, low down people. There was literally nothing good in us, deserving to be saved. And maybe you're sitting here and thinking, well, I'm not that bad. I mean, I, I've, I've not murdered anybody. Maybe you were saved at a young age and you said, well, really, how, how bad could I have been? My wife was five years old. My daughter was five years old when, when they were saved. H how much trouble could a five-year-old really have gotten into? But I back us up to Romans chapter 2. Remember, chapters 1 through 4 of the book of Romans is all about the gospel and the reason for the gospel is sin. In order to have the gospel, which means the good news, in order to have the good news, you must understand the bad news. And so Romans 1, 2, 3, and 4 is all about the bad news, leading up to the good news. I take us back to Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 2, Paul tells us the same wicked, sin-laced heart that, that's in the chest of a murderer is the same heart that beats in the chest of everyone. In heaven, there is no scale on sin. Murder is as bad as hate. In fact, Jesus said that if you hated a man in your heart, you've committed murder. Lust is just as bad as, as, as adultery. Jesus said that if you lust after another person in, in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Dear friend, this is why we're not sinners because of our actions. No, no, no. We're not sinners because of our actions. We're sinners because of our heart. And we, we, we were, we're lost and sinking deeper and deeper in our sin. And, and for some, this comes as a surprise. I mean, most people think that they're inherently good. When we go out and witnessing and we, we, we talk to people and we ask them, are you going to go to heaven? Well, I hope so. Okay. Um, why, why do you think God would let you into his heaven? Well, because I'm a good person. And there's no question that, that most people are inherently good. They work, they provide for their families, they pay their taxes, they help others. For the most part, it seems that humanity is good. But all these things that I just described are, are external actions. Yes, external actions mean things, but God is not necessarily concerned with our external actions. He's concerned with our internal heart. The Bible says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? You see, this is why we, we, we're not sinners because of our actions. We're sinners because of a wicked heart. And with all this bad news, Paul tells us that, that God has done something for us. He looked down and he saw us in our sinful state that we could not do anything to, to help ourselves. And he saw us just flailing for water and trying to keep our head above. And we're, we're sinking deeper and deeper and deeper. And God looked down and Paul tells us that God did something for us. We, we, we can't save ourselves. Something that we didn't deserve, something we can't pay for. We're, we're sinking, we're, we're losing hope and the awesomeness of God is found right here in these two verses. For we're told that despite our ungodliness, look at what he says, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That, that word ungodly, it means sinners. It means one's not like God. So despite our outright blatant in-his-face rebellion, despite the fact that, that we have nothing to offer but spoiled leftovers, he chose God literally chose, notice what the text says, not as an afterthought. He says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Men, it's confession time. 
Have you ever forgotten your anniversary? You don't have to confess to me. <laughs> You're like, wow, Pastor. Um, that was like 10 years ago, and thanks for bringing up that one again. Just got past it. July 26, 2003 was when Sarah and I were married. The same day, many years earlier, was the, the day that her mom and dad got married, July 26. And someone asked me, said, um, so did you get married on July 26th? Why did you get married on July 26th? I said, because that's the day that Sarah told me that we're getting married. But about 30 years before, I guess 1973, her mom and dad got married on the same day, July 26th. And so I looked at her dad. Her dad's a pastor. His name is Holly Miller, Holly and Paula Miller. And I, I, I looked at her dad and said, you know, the, the, the great thing about July 26th that we share an anniversary is that, that over these next three or four years, you know, I, I'm going to have to be reminded to, to remember the anniversary. He said, son, listen, it doesn't work that way. He said, you're going to have to remind me of the anniversary. But if you've ever forgotten your anniversary, you've forgotten a, 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 a big day like that, what do you have to do? Well, you have to go overboard and extravagant, outdo your oversight, right? You, you have to make up for it, but then you have to, if you're going to buy a one-carat diamond, you've got to buy like a three-carat diamond, right? You've you got to go extravagant. You've got to go overboard because you had a massive oversight. Well, salvation in Jesus, the gospel, God's plan is not an afterthought. He, he, he didn't forget. He, 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 it's, it's not like God looking down at the world and, and saw our sin and said, wow, how in the world did I miss that from coming? You know, I, I, how did I forget that? And then he came up with some extravagant plan and, and had to put some pieces together and buy a bigger diamond to, 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 to fix the mistake. No, that's not what Paul says here in the scripture. Paul says that in verse six, at the right time, in due time. This means before the foundation of the world, God chose a specific time to send his son God knew before he even created anything that we would need a savior. And in his divine wisdom, he chose to send his son, Jesus, 2,000 years ago. I wrote a paper back in my seminary days on, on why God would send Jesus 2,000 years ago and not today. Because when you stop and think about it, it would seem more logical to send the Savior today, right? Because of, of technology and, and the internet. And, and you can say something in Orlando, and what you say in Orlando can be taken around the world in just a matter of seconds. It would seem more logical for God to send his son today. And so I wrote a paper, and I, I was trying to uncover and discover uh, why is it that God would have sent his son 2,000 years ago? Of course, I, I, I had to just bring conjecture because I don't know the mind of God. But, but, but here's what I, I came to. Would people today really believe more if, they, if he sent his son today? Would they really? I mean, 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to his own people and his own people received him not. Jesus came at a time, and, and this is what, what I came down to. I, I believe the reason why God sent Jesus at the time that he did is because it was the right time. That was my conclusion. Exactly what scripture says. It was the right time. And when you stop and think about it, it was the perfect time. The Jews had had the law for roughly 1,400 years. 
1,400 years they had the law of Moses. And so they, 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 it, it, I think that's a good amount of time that God allowed to show that the world that the law could not save them. Doing enough good cannot save you. 1,400 years of trying to live in accordance with rules and every single human from the time of Abraham or from the time of Adam all the way to the time of Christ could never fulfill the law. God gave them 1,400 years, a, a pretty good running start to try to make it work. But man couldn't save himself. Man couldn't do it. Jesus came in the midst of, of, of a philosophical revolution, the height of, of Greek philosophy, man's intuition, knowledge, reason, intellect. Jesus came at the right time to demonstrate that man's intuition and knowledge could not save him. God also sent Jesus at the time that when the powerhouse was at its pinnacle, Rome, the, the strongest military might this world had ever seen. Jesus came at the right time to demonstrate that all of man's power and all of man's strength could not save him. Paul says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died. Not because we could save ourselves, but because we can't save ourselves. The second reason why he tells us here in the text that Christ had to die for us, not only can we not save ourselves, but number two, to show God's love. Look at verse 8. He says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How does Paul prove God's love for us? In the text, does he say that God proves his love to us through the miracles of Jesus? Well, I mean, that's what many people think, right? If God loves me, then he's going to do this for me. That's not love. Love doesn't say, give me what I want to show me that you love me. That's not love, that's extortion. And so many marriages and so many relationships today are built off this messed up notion that love isn't giving things. That, that's wrong. Now, from the root of love and, and an expression of love is to give things, right? Certainly love can be demonstrated. That's what the text here says, Romans 5, 8. God shows his love. God demonstrates his love to us. In fact, we just saw in our first point that we brought nothing to this relationship with him. Our good deeds are filthy rags to him. He did it all. And not only is his position pure love for us, he then turns around and demonstrates his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want you to make a mental note that this verse is not about our love for God. It's about God's love for us. This verse has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with him. This is not about how we are, yes, we are to love God. Of course, we're, the preacher told me not to love God. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is these verses don't explicitly tell us that we are to love God. These verses explicitly say God loves you. We, 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 we often hear, you're to love God, you're to love God, you're to love God. I'm here to tell you. If you miss everything else I say today, don't miss these three words. God loves you. He loves you. I don't know how you were raised. I don't know what type of home life you were from. Maybe, maybe you were raised in a home life where you never heard anyone say, I love you. Maybe you're, you're, you're desperately seeking someone to, to love you and, and not manipulate you, a pure love. I'm here to tell you that God loves you that way. Stop looking, stop searching. He's looking for that relationship to love you. 
These, these verses are all about how God loves us, how Christ died for us. And his love for us was not just showed. It shows that we're saved. It, it, it didn't just stop at that relationship. You see, verse 8, notice the verb tenses here. We're taught in the English language that when you write a sentence, all of your, your, your subject verbs, your, your verb agreement, right? Uh, meaning that when you're writing a paragraph, you, you need to have your verb tenses all the same. So you, if you're writing a paragraph or you're writing a paper, you're writing a book, um, if you're using and talking in past tense, you stay in the past tense. You don't then come over and start talking in the present tense and then jump to the future tense and then come back over here to the past tense and because then it gets all confusing and you're like, okay, were we talking about then? Are we talking about now? Are we talking about the future? Where are we talking about? This is what Paul, I, I, look at the verb tenses that Paul uses here in verse eight. Notice what he says. God, verse eight, chapter five, God demonstrates, that's present tense. God demonstrates his love for us in while we were yet sinners, Christ died, that's past tense, for us. You would think that both of these words would be in the past tense, that God demonstrated in the past his love for us when Christ died for us. But, but Paul says, no, God demonstrates right now, today, his love for us. And, and here's Paul's point. You weren't what you should have been and you aren't what you should be. You aren't what you should have been and you aren't what you should be. The beauty, don't miss the beauty of Romans 5.8. For you see, if, if he said God demonstrated in the past tense that God showed his love back then and Christ died for us and that, that love that he showed us was only in the past tense, then every time we sinned, we would have to be resaved. Every time we sin, we would have to come back to the cross and get saved over and over again because it's only through the love and through the grace of, of Christ Jesus that we can be saved. So Paul says, God didn't just show us back then that we were saved. God shows today. He demonstrates even today. And he covers over a multitude of sins even today. You see, when you came to know Christ as your Savior and Lord, if you're saved here today, you were a sinner in need of a Savior, right? And you got saved. Now are you perfect? Now, now that you're a Christian, are you perfect? Are you have you ever messed up since you've been saved? The appropriate answer is yes. Because if you said, no, I've never messed up, I, I, I've never sinned since I've been saved, you just sinned because you just lied. Lying's a sin, last time I checked. So even though we're saved, you say, well, if, if I'm saved and I, 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 I now have Christ living in me, and then I'm now still sinning, what's the difference? We're still sinners, but now we're sinners saved by grace. We're sinners, and we're going to get to this in just a moment. We're, we're sinners, but we have been justified. We, we no longer have the wrath of God being poured out against us because of our sin. Our sin, our, our lives have been covered in the blood of Christ. And, and now we are seen as his children. Parents, your, your, your kids, they, you, you, you teach them right from wrong. They learn the rules. They, 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 you have a relationship with them. They're still going to mess up, aren't they? They're going to still test the boundaries. It's the same thing with Christians. We, we still test the boundaries with God. We, we still choose wrong over right, but we come back to the fact that, that we are saved now by grace. 
If he only showed his love back then when we were saved, then every time we sin, we would have to be resaved. But the one thing I do know is this. His love is for me. His love is for me. His love was for me. His love is for me. And his love will always be for me. And that's, not, and, and that's for all of us. Every one of us. God loves you. Christ died for your sins, and when you come to a saving knowledge of him, you don't have to be saved over and over and over and over because his love is in the present tense. His love, he demonstrates his love right now. And he doesn't demonstrate his love in superficial external miracles, but a deep, lasting, internal relationship that alters our very being. The third point and the third reason why Jesus had to die is this, so we can have peace with God. This is verses 9 through 11. Notice what he says in verse 9 through 11. He, he throws out some big words here that we need to dissect again. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. He goes on talking about reconciliation. Remember how we defined justified before. We said that Billy Graham and a lot of smart people defined justification like this, just as if I had never sinned. And that's a good way to define it, but, but I believe it goes even further uh, because justification for our lawyers that are in the house today, it, it's a judicial term. And, and justification is the legal act where God declares a sinner clean, where he declares someone who is unclean, clean. A sinner, he declares righteous. It's the act of God in which a sinner is called clean. God declares us spotless, acceptable before him. God looks at us and he, he looks at that man and, and he sees no sin in that man. He looks at this woman, he, he looks and he sees, I says, I no longer see any sin in her. You're now just in his sight. So despite the fact, we, we, we just talked about this, we're saved and, and now after our salvation, we're, we're walking, we're still sinning. So despite the fact of our lies and our gossiping and our, our blasphemies, our cursing, our impurities, our, our vulgarities, all the times we've chosen our way over his way, we've chosen the creation over the creator, all that stuff is removed, and we stand before him just. And I, I say this again, this is the awesomeness of this text. This is the awesomeness of God, because we are justified by him. There is no me or I at all in this text. It's all him. He did it all. There's no amount of working my way up. The only way to have peace with God is through our, the blood of Jesus Christ. Because through the death and through his blood, the wrath of God is absorbed. That's, this is what he says. We're teaching Abby now. She, she's six. And I don't know why it is, but, but kids, it may just be our kids, but when, when kids spill drinks, their, their first reaction is not to clean it up. Their first reaction is to start crying. And... And, and we're trying to teach our six-year-old little girl, she has a sweetheart, and we're trying to teach Abigail that, that you know, don't cry over spilled milk, right? Don't, when, when you spill your juice, when you spill something, honey, accidents happen. We, we, we always spill, and then what I do is I'll get my drink and I'll spill it too so she sees that, that daddy messes up just like she messes up and, 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 and trying, to, trying to do that, and, and accidents happen. But when you spill liquid on, a, on, on the kitchen counter, when you put a paper towel or a towel on, on, that, on that spill, what happens? It, 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 don't, don't miss this. Don't miss this. It absorbs the liquid. 
right? It, it removes the liquid from the counter and the towel takes on the spill. The, 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 the towel absorbs the mistake and the mistake is transferred from the counter into the towel. Was it the towel's fault that the spill occurred? No. But it's the towel's job to clean up the spill. You and I, by our own volition, have made a mess of our lives. We, we, our lives are spilled milk. And God looked down and he said, I'm going to send my son Jesus to be that towel to absorb up your mistakes. That's what happened on the cross, right? Um, he became sin who knew no sin, that we may become his righteousness. He's our propitiation. He, he, he absorbs the wrath, right? That when, when Jesus was on the cross and, and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The, 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 the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, for 1,400 years, for, for many years, people have tried to do themselves and live up to themselves and, and save themselves, and they never could. And when he was hanging there on the cross, he, he cried out and he said that. At that moment, he became sin. Uh, the, the, the sins of the world were imputed upon the Savior. A man who knew no sin became sin. This is powerful. This is powerful. Don't miss it. The, the, the text gives us some, some clues about some really important events that happened there on the cross. Remember when Jesus was about to die and, and the Sabbath day was coming and, and the, 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 the high priests were really upset because you cannot have a Jew being crucified on the Sabbath day. So they told the Roman soldiers, the Roman centurions, to go and to do what to the legs of Jesus? To break the legs, right? In order for the asphyxiation for him to fall and so he would die very quickly. But the Roman soldiers came to Jesus and they looked up and what did they notice? Jesus was already dead. Now they were confused by this. Why were they confused that Jesus was already dead? He should not be dead yet. These Romans have crucified people for hundreds of years. They know that when a person is crucified, they're going to live for a certain number of hours. And we hear, well, he was beaten beforehand. Most of the criminals were beaten beforehand too. It wasn't just Jesus. Why did Jesus die so quick? I believe that when he was there on the cross and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, God the Father turned his back on God the Son and Jesus experienced the full wrath of God upon the sin of the world and it literally, physically killed him. It killed him. When you experience the wrath of God, it brings forth judgment and death. But notice, notice, Jesus was innocent. He was pure. He was spotless. He didn't mess up. He didn't lie. He, did, he, he, he didn't do those things that we did. That's why he was the perfect sacrifice. See, the wrath of God was poured out upon our sin. The judgment that we were to face and we should be facing, Jesus paid it back then. And all you have to do is receive him as Savior and Lord. And when that happens, you, are, you receive that justification. You, you receive that that wrath is no longer for us, verse 9. And he absorbs up our sin, and he absorbs up the wrath of God. 
The greatest news that any ear can ever hear is that you can have peace with God. What does the world want? Just, just turn on the news. Read, read the What does the world want? The world wants peace, don't they? They, they want peace. Everywhere we turn, we, we hear about peace, peace, peace. We, want, we all want peace, but they're searching for peace in all the wrong ways. The only way to truly have peace is not to make peace treaties with other nations. The only way to have peace is to have peace with God. The greatest news that anyone can hear is there is a way to have peace with God, and it's through the blood of Jesus Christ. Notice that Paul says here, and he, he says it's, it's through, verse 11, through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see that? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. He uses the same prepositional phrase in verse 1. Uh, jump up to chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He bookends. This is, this, this is a way that, that tells us this is important. When, he take, when, when, when Paul, or a writer in the New Testament, when, when they take a thought and they begin with that thought and then they say a whole bunch of stuff and they take those same words and they end with those same words, that means there's, there's an important thought there that we need to grab a hold of. He, he's telling us that everything begins and ends with Jesus Christ. That in order to have peace with God, it's through Jesus Christ. In order to have joy, in order to have hope, in order to have faith, it's all through Jesus. In order to be saved, it's, it's through Jesus Christ. We must center ourselves on Jesus, doing whatever it takes. That, that's the vision statement of Aloma Church, right? Our mission statement, our vision statement is to center ourselves on Jesus, to do whatever it takes for people to experience eternal life, to experience life change. You see, that's why we have a group of people every Tuesday that goes out to apartment communities and, and knocks on doors and, and they talk to people that they've never met before and they talk to them about Jesus. Why do they do that to complete strangers? Because they're centering themselves on Jesus to do whatever it takes for people to experience life change. You see, this is why our hearts are burdened for single moms in our community. Women who are themselves, many of them are going to college and they're, they're working uh, 40, 50 hours. They're, they're going to school online. They're, they're trying to maintain their house and they're, they're, they're trying to raise their kids. They're trying to do what's right and they're trying to make ends meet. And wh wh why, are, why are we starting all these ministries for single moms? Because we want them to experience life change. Center ourselves on Jesus, doing whatever it takes for people to experience life change. This is why we have that group that meets on Tuesday morning, Celebrate uh, Freedom, Celebrate Recovery group on, on Tuesday nights. People who come with, with hang-ups and addictions and struggles and issues. Can I tell you, I, I've been there. They don't just sit around and hold hands and sing Kumbaya, my Lord. Lord, I messed up, you fix it. No. We have a, a, a bunch of, of, of adults that, that, that come in and, and they, they speak into their lives. And they point everybody to Jesus. Okay, you've been hooked on drugs. Okay, you're drinking. Okay, you've got marriage problems. Okay, you, you, you've got these sin things going on. Okay, join the crowd. Get behind me because as Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. We're all sinners. We all got problems. We all got hang-ups. All we're trying to do is, is, is trying to figure this thing out together. We, we may not have all the answers, but we do know the one who does. And so there on Tuesday nights, we always point people not, not to some self-help program, 
not, not some 10-step program. True life change does not come through counseling or books or self-help. These things aren't wrong in and of themselves, but we know the kind of life change that we're talking about only comes when you meet Jesus Christ. Centering ourselves on Jesus, doing whatever it takes for people to experience life change. This is why we're talking about, you've heard me talk about this new children's building that we're, we're wanting to build. Several of you have already started giving to that. Thank you. Why are we doing it just to, just to build another building? Are we going into the, the, the construction business now? No. If you've ever been to our children's building, you, you realize the, the, the great need that we have in this children's building. But God's quickened many of your hearts the importance of reaching children and families. Why are we talking about the children's building? It's because we're limited with our current building. And we know that a newer facility is going to help us see more lives change. It's centering ourselves on Jesus, doing whatever it takes for people to experience life change. This coming fall, this is in your bulletin, this coming fall. For the past 10 years, we've done a fall festival here at Aloma. For the past three, we've done something called a trunk retreat. We've always taken our property and we, we've, we've taken our property and we've asked people to come onto our property. We're gonna do something different this year. I know some people are gonna be offended, but again, just send me the email. Because we don't exist just to bring people to us. That, that's a really poor way to build relationships. To, to get our message out, we, we tell people you've gotta to come to us. That's backwards. So you know what we did? We partnered with God's Restaurant. You know what God's Restaurant is? You all know what God's Restaurant, Chick-fil-A. We partnered with the owner of Chick-fil-A down here on University, and, and, and we're going to do a trunk or treat, a, a joint trunk or treat over on Chick-fil-A. They, they rented out the whole uh, Costco parking lot, and we're taking our, our, our cars and our trunks and our candy and our people, and we're going out to uh, Chick-fil-A in the fall. And we're going to do a trunk or treat, not just for the people here, but we're doing a trunk or treat for as many people as we can reach. Why are we doing that? Why are we doing that? We, we, we want to get out in the community because we know that we have a message that will change and alter lives. We exist to center ourselves on Jesus, to do whatever it takes for people to experience life change. I received a letter from a pastor in Louisiana, a friend of mine. Uh, the pastor who, who is in the church in Baton Rouge, who we sent the, the, the money and the resources, I shared this with you a few weeks ago. Remember the floods that Louisiana had and, and, and there was one whole uh, county there where uh, like 85, 90, 95, almost 100% of the houses were, were flooded, had some type of damage. And, and I, I shared with you that at Loma Church, we, we took resources and money and we sent to this church for the sole purpose uh, for them to take these resources and, and finances and, and to, 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 to do life change. And I just received a letter from this pastor just this past week and he said, he said Wes, I, I can't tell you the, 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 uh, of what has taken place because of Aloma Church and her willingness to support what we're doing here in Louisiana and Baton Rouge. He said, we are seeing lives change. We are seeing whole families that were anti-gospel are now coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Generations are being changed because of the investment that Aloma Church decided to make because of a flood that happened. You see, it's not just money. It wasn't just shovels. It wasn't just gloves and goggles that we sent. We're sending life change. 
why, why do we support the 6,000 missionaries to the Southern Baptist Convention? Just, just so we can pat ourselves on the back and say we have the largest mission-sending organization in the world that this world has ever seen? Why do we do what we do? We do it because we want people to experience life change. You know, when I was saved at the age of 17, I'm glad that God had a whatever-it-took attitude to save me. And we must take this whatever-it-takes attitude to take the gospel out. I want to ask a very pointed question. If your waiter, if your neighbor, if your friend, if your parent or your child was dependent upon you to be the only witness of Jesus that they'll ever see in their life, what are the chances that they're going to see and hear Jesus from you. Decide to be an agent of change today. Be a person of influence. Why did I rattle off these ministries? Why did I tell you again about sending money to, to uh, Louisiana? Why did I tell you about the missionaries? Why did I tell you about our, our Tuesday night ministries for, for those that, that are having struggles? Why did I tell you about the children's ministry? Why did I tell you about all of this? The reason why I told you about all of this is because every single one of us have a piece, a part to play in this overall scheme to see lives change. Maybe you can support this by writing a check. Great. Maybe you can support this by coming and being a volunteer in our student ministry, our children's ministry. We need workers for Awana. We're, we're about to start Awana. We have uh, more kids than we've ever had sign up for our Awana ministry. We need more adults to come in and sign up and help our children to learn scripture. We, we need people to come and to help and to serve. Why? 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 Because we must be about life change. Decide today to be an agent of change, a person of influence. You see, this thing is far bigger than us. But how cool is it that we get to be a part of God's story and we get to make a difference in the lives of others every time we point them to Jesus.